We're going to read the scripture together in Matthew 16. Please join me. Now, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, but others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. This is the word of the Lord. Now you may be seated. But some people have glasses for reading. Reading glasses, people, they'll be in here. They'll have them with them. Because they never know when reading might occur in their lives. <laughs> so they make sure when they go out, I've got my reading glasses, just in case reading should happen. And then when reading occurs, they will, they will reach them. Ah! Reading is happening now. <laughs> they tend to make a point with their glasses. People, reading glasses, people feel very powerful when they have their glasses. Just before I put them on, I'd like to make some additional points. <laughs> then they open them up, and I have further points with them open. And then they'll be reading in this direction. All the reading goes here, so I can still see you here. Don't you pull anything over there. I'm reading in this direction. <laughs> but without a shadow of a doubt, the coolest, no doubts about this, the coolest reading glasses people in the world are the people who manage to maintain their glasses on their forehead. How cool are these people? How do they even do it? They have magnificent eyebrow control. And they can access it whenever they need to. Would you like to see the wine list? Yes, I would. <laughs> How cool are these guys? <laughs> Just so you know, I could read at any moment. <laughs> All right, everybody, about Jesus. It didn't quite work the way I wanted it to. These are not what I expected a couple of years ago, not what I wanted. All of a sudden, though, looking at, trying to look and read in the book, trying to read, Sasha's just gone. I meet with this group of guys that, um, um, once a year for every, uh, every year for the last 19. And as we were trying to plan our next year and looking at our calendars and getting our books out and stuff, uh, in a dark room, we were in a cabin, so there wasn't a whole lot of light. I slowly noticed that everybody was pulling out these, these things called reader glasses. And I'm like, you too? And like, yeah, man, I just, all of a sudden, it's just, it's just a blank piece of paper in front of me. Uh, getting old, getting older has its, uh, has its challenges, right? Well, I wonder uh, for those of us who have been following the Lord, whether it's this week that you've said yes to Jesus or you've been following him for 50 years, I believe that we need to have our eyes checked from time to time. We need, to, um, we need to allow the Spirit to perform a spiritual eye exam on us so that we, can, we understand who we're following, who he is, and what he's up to. And that's what Matthew 16 does. It gives us a chance to check our eyes so that we know, uh, we know more about this Jesus that we're, that we're serving. And so here we are. Uh, this, this, story about, um, this story about Jesus with his disciples offers us two lenses, two, uh, two lenses of a pair of glasses, if you will, one being identity and the other being mission. And it's this first lens identity that I want to start with because this is where Jesus starts with. Uh, and it says in verse 13 that when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? When he came to the district of Caesarea Philippi. Um, some of y'all, if, you, if you've studied elections uh, lately or you study um, announcements of certain things, you know that when it comes to a presidential run, where you announce is a big decision. Ronald Reagan, when he first decided to run, he, uh, he, didn't choose a lo- he chose a New York studio 
in, some, in a setting that was very presidential looking to make his announcement. When Bill Clinton ran, he, cho- he decided to, ch- uh, to choose Little Rock, Arkansas, because that's where he'd been governor. Obama, when he decided to run, he chose Springfield, Illinois, the birth- birthplace of, uh, of Abraham Lincoln and also the, um, uh, also the state capitol there. For Trump, he just came down the staircase. But the whole optics of each one of those decisions was to look presidential. They wanted to project an image of a winner, of someone that we could see in that office. That's what they were trying to do. And so when Jesus begins to ask his disciples for the first time here in Matthew, who do, you say people, who do, who do people say that I am? He chooses the most bizarre location ever. Where? Caesarea Philippi. Can you even point that out on a map? Do you know where that is? Why there? Why there? Well, let me show you what, um, where Caesarea Philippi is on the map. Um, down here at the bottom, you'll see, you see Jerusalem and Jericho. Uh, this is, the, state, this is the, 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 the seat of the capital, right, for Israel, where David and Solomon were and the kings. Um, but you, as you move up, you get past Samaria and you get past Nazareth, where Jesus was born in the Lake at Sea of Galilee, where Jesus did most of his ministry. And then farther north, way up uh, the tributaries of the Jordan, you get to Caesarea Philippi. This is one of the um, palaces that Herod the Great had established and his sons took over. Um, but it's way stinking up there. It's as far from Jerusalem as possible. Why Caesarea Philippi? Um, this is a, uh, what would be a rendition of, of Caesarea Philippi in its heyday where Jesus, when Jesus and the disciples might have been there. Um, along the back wall, along this cliff wall, you see several, um, you see several temples to other gods. Um, August, uh, to Caesars and to other Greek, uh, sorry, Roman gods. And then you have here this, this uh, temple to the god Pan. God, uh, Pan was that little goat thing who on the flute kind of a deal. And um, uh, also at, this, at the city, um, let me get here, the city, this is the headwaters, one of the tributaries, headwaters of the Jordan. Four tributaries make up the Jordan. Um, and this water, this water flows out of the rocks they, uh, from Mount Hermon to the north of it. Um, the water is, is, it gets so, uh, the water is so great, you can even raft on it. This is my family. My kids are so much younger there. Uh, we're rafting on, on, on the tributary of the Jordan, the Benias River. Uh, but going back to it, you actually have this, the ruins now of, that you can see today. And here is actually uh, in, this, in this hole where the Temple of Pan was, was called, actually called the Gates of Hades. This was, it was a literal place. Uh, to the people in this region, the gates of Hades. So um, a place where uh, a king lived, a place where a ruler was, a place where other people, um, other gods are worshipped. Really? Jesus? This is where you're going to make the announcement? And yet it's here in Caesarea Philippi that he says that he asks that question, that he begins, he asks a two-pole question of his disciples. And he asks, so who do people say that I am? And I believe that he did it here. I believe that he chose it here because Jesus wants to, wanted to make a point that Jesus is not God in a vacuum. He's not God just on Sunday. He's not God just in Jerusalem. And that would make sense. I mean, Jerusalem with the sun behind his back, right, and all the people who are coming to prayer, that would have been a more logical place for him to announce or for him to ask this question because then it would just be given. Well, obviously, you're standing on the steps. You, something to do with God here in Israel? But no, but it's here that he announces, that he, excuse me, that he asks his disciples. 
Because God, Jesus is not God in a vacuum. He's not afraid of competition because there is no competition. Jesus wants to be seen for who he is in our day-to-day lives, not just on Sunday mornings, not just when we gather for special events, but, but who he is throughout our days. He is God. He is unique. He is set apart. Can we recognize him? And so it's here that he begins to ask his disciples. And he asked, he asked, he asked this, this two-pole question um, first this way. Who do people say that I, that I, the Son of Man, am? Who do people say? It's a safe question, right? It's not putting you on the spot yet. It's just asking, who do people say? And what do they answer? And they answer in verse 14. They said, some say John the Baptist, the others Elijah, and so others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Those are good answers, right? Those are good people. John the Baptist, not a bad guy. Forerunner of, the, forerunner of Christ, Elijah, uh, did some, for those of y'all who are reading along the disciples, we just watched him take on 450 prophets of Baal. Not a bad dude, right? Or one of the prophets. If you read the Hebrews 11 in the, in the hall of faith there, you, re, you see all the things that they did, victories and, and encounters and bringing people back to God. These are good people. It's probably, they would all fit into the Bible's top 10. I mean, he could have, they could have named other people as well. They could have said Deborah. They could have said Samson, but they named these three. They're, he's pointing at these are the top of the top of the top of the best of the best in the Bible. They're great answers. But what's wrong with these answers? What don't they communicate? Why doesn't, uh, is, there, is, there, is there something missing? And I would say, that all the answers are inadequate because what they do point out is that these people were great and they did good things for God, but we are still waiting for God to show up. We are still waiting for the Messiah. We are still waiting for God himself to walk among us. And I think this is what Jesus wanted to hear. Uh, Because ultimately, I don't think Jesus is interested in what the crowd says. He wants to know what his disciples say. And so he asks the question. He turns it and makes it personal to them. He asks, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? In Matthew 16, 15. Who do you say that I am? And here in the story is where Peter shines. Peter is, uh, Peter is lifted up as someone who, who gets it. Because it's Peter's confession that follows that sets this, that, that moves the story forward, that moves the, that moves the disciples and what Jesus is trying to tell them um, onward. Peter says this in verse 16, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Who do you, who do you say that I am? Jesus, and Peter says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Now, when um, I was in, uh, when I was in college, I was part of the Texas Tech Wesley Foundation. Uh, it was an incredible place for me uh, because it helped me put my faith together in a way that, had, uh, that hadn't happened up until that point. And I'd gone to church. I'd gone to summer camps. I'd probably been baptized way too many times. Um, at, at done the whole thing. Done, done the whole thing uh, through, our, um, through our independent church there in Lubbock, Texas. Uh, but it was in college where I first heard... And I first understood that it was about a personal relationship with Jesus. And I, um, it just, all of a sudden, it just clicked. And I remember going home uh, that week or pretty soon after that. It was a Bible study. And, and talking to my mom, I was like, well, what happened? 
And, and I tell her, I go, Mom, I, all, this, all this Christian stuff, all this faith stuff, I go, I finally realized it's about having a personal relationship with Jesus. I go, it's awesome. And she said, well, I told you that. And I go, well, you're my mom. I couldn't hear you. <laughs> but it became personal. It became personal. And for Peter, it was no longer about what others say, but it was about what he believed. It was personal. And we see in the story, we see in this encounter, it moved from public opinion to a personal confession. It got real. It got personal. And that's where Jesus was. I believe that's what Jesus was looking for. I believe it's where he's finally able to breathe a sigh of relief because he's been hanging out with these guys for almost three years. He knows that he's heading to Jerusalem, and they finally may be getting it. Sometimes the disciples are the disciples in the scriptures. But here, Peter, here Peter says, okay, Jesus, we got this part of the lesson plan down. Let's move on to the next step. Peter answers, when Peter answers for himself, who, do you, who are you, Jesus? Who are you to me? You're the Messiah. And I think we have to ask that same question for ourselves. Who do we say that Jesus is? Who do we know that he is? But not your mama, not your grandmother, not your spouse, not your children, not your pastors. Who do you say that I am? Can you answer that? Do you know that? Maybe that's something you need to spend some time before you lay your head on the pillow tonight to say, Jesus, uh, maybe I don't know all who you are, but I want to. But I want to. Because that helps us move on to the next part of this story. Jesus asks, a really, he asks an explicit question when he says, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? But as he transitions from the lens of identity, um, he, he moves into the lens of mission. But before he does that, from Peter's, um, with, Peter's, with Peter's confession of who Jesus is, uh, Jesus answered him this way. Uh, and I believe this is what unlocks and begins to help, help us see what's next. And Jesus revealed, answered him and said, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Friends, our confession, our confession brings power. Our confession brings authority. Our confession allows us to join God in what he's doing. It's the, it's the step that helps us see and begin to see, maybe even for the first time, what he's calling us to do. It involves us in the second lens, which is his mission. Now, again, a really explicit question, who do you say that I am? But I think what we're going to see in this next part of the story is that there's an implicit question is, do we know what Jesus is about? Do we know his job title? Do we know his job description? Do we know what he's here for? And we're going to see him bump heads with Peter. Because corporate uh, wants somebody to be here on Saturday, and so we're going to have to have a couple people come in on the weekends, and I know nobody's going to want to do it, and everybody's going to complain, and I don't want to have to deal with it. And that's why you have an assistant regional manager. Yes, it is. Assistant to the regional manager. Same thing. No, it's not. It's lower, so. It's close. I Dwight, come on. wanted to talk to you about the downsizing. There's no downsizing. I, but if there were, I'd be protected as assistant regional manager. Assistant to the regional manager. Do I, yep. I am now senpai, which is assistant sensei. Assistant to the sensei? That's pretty cool. Assistant sensei. Okay. 
if you've never watched The Office, you got the whole running joke there. Job title matters, right? It matters. It mattered when my friend Shannon first uh, got out of college and uh, joined the joined the staff of the Orlando area Habitat for Humanity. She was so excited because she um, she got hired on as the coordinator for family services, and she had all these ideas. Uh, she had all these plans for what could take place, and every time she went to her boss and asked how she could help, he would say things like, can you make coffees for me, or can you get us some coffee? And she's like, Okay, yeah, I can do that. I can help with that. But, you know, she was just pumped about what she was getting to do. The first board meeting came uh, in about the first three months that she was there, and she kept asking, the, asking her boss what she could do to prepare. What, did she need to give a report? How, did, how could she help? And he asked her to order sandwiches for the meeting. She didn't quite understand what her job was until uh, National Secretary's Week where she started getting flowers and gifts from her boss and the other staff members for all of her support. Uh, she found out that uh, they had a little bit of a, of a difference in what her role was. She was, the, she was a coordinator for family services, but really, what was she? She's a secretary. She was a secretary. Peter and Jesus both have ideas about what Messiah means, but they, have the, the, but they don't match. And so we find here... And Jesus begins to describe his job, his job title and description to the to his disciples for the first time. He's actually laying it out to them for the first time. They have not heard this. We we read maybe you read the scripture over and over again, but this is news to them. This is news to them, and he says it this way: From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hand of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. You get those words? Undergo great suffering, be killed, and on the third day be raised. What would you, um, what would you say if your boss had just lined out a five-year plan for your company and it involved suffering and dying, Right? You wouldn't get to that part of the third day with third day being raised. What do you think Peter did? Peter says, took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord. This must never happen to you. They had a different idea of what Messiah meant. It wasn't, they weren't on the same page. Um, and this, it's interesting because in Isaiah, if you were reading about the Messiah, especially from 49 on, uh, you can get different glimpses of what the Messiah is. If you read Isaiah 61, it's about triumph. It's about rebuilding. It's about the joy of the Lord. It's about people coming to serve. I mean, like, this is a grand vision. But if you back up to Isaiah 53, and I want to kind of offer this as homework to you um, this week. If you read Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant, and, and this one who would lay, himself da- lay his life down for us, who would, um, who would suffer for us, who would die for our iniquities, you realize that Isaiah is talking about, uh, Leah, Isaiah has different lenses on who this, say, this Messiah is, but if you're only reading one, you're not getting the full picture. And Peter didn't have the full picture of who this Messiah, who Jesus is supposed to be. It's not that Peter doesn't understand what Jesus is saying now. I believe he, get, I believe he understands it to a point. It's just that he doesn't like it. And who does? Who wants to sign up for suffering and death? 
when we want when times we want Jesus just to bring the victory and to restore and to bring hope again, and yet Jesus had a mission that that couldn't begin uh, that was more than what Peter thought, because Peter um, and the disciples, I believe, had this idea that Jesus was going to restore the kingdom of Israel. He was going to come in on a white horse. He was going to take over Jerusalem again. He was going to kick the Romans out. He was going to restore order and worship. He was going to make everything go right. Everyone's going to have college for free. I mean, whatever you name it. And in the midst of it, Peter was going to be one of those guys with a corner office on the temple. Peter had signed up for a victory. And what Jesus is lining out is this mission to save and restore that's going to cost him his life. And Peter wants none of it. But Peter isn't alone. Peter does, Peter's not the only one who doesn't understand what Jesus is about. Even John the Baptist questioned Jesus. Even John the Baptist was not sure what was happening, especially in Matthew 11. John gets arrested. Um, he has this prophetic ministry. He thinks his cousin, because Jesus and John are cousins, he thinks Jesus is about to uh, bring in this new era of, of, of salvation and uh, and restoration for Israel, and now as he's facing uh, as he's facing the executioner, he wonders. I mean, you got it. You got, you can't blame him for wondering what's this really all about. And so he sends disciples to Jesus and says to Jesus, "Are you the one, or are we looking for another? Are you it, or are we looking for another? Because I can't see it. I don't get what you're doing. You're you're hanging around Galilee. You're doing all this stuff." But you know, are we, when are we going to get to when are we going to get to what you came for? And Jesus responds to him this way: He says, "The blind see, the lame walk, the dead are raised, and blessed are those who's not offended by me." I think in a in a uh, imagine sending your cousin a. A, a message uh, through somebody else when you know he's probably not going to make it. But he says, the kingdom is coming. I'm doing what, I'm he- what I was sent here to do. And I hope you don't get tripped up over it. Because my mission is bigger than just some temporary kingdom. I'm here. I'm here for something greater. Here's the thing. We can't separate Jesus' identity from his mission. Who he is is intrinsically connected to what he came to do. You can't separate him. We can't bifurcate him. We can't have one without the other. Or, we, or he, won't, he won't look or be who we need him, needed him to be, need him to be. So what is his mission? What did he come to do? One of the best echoes in literature of what I, um, what I see Jesus coming, have, having come to do uh, is found in the tale of two cities. Um, this hopefully this isn't much of a spoiler alert. Um, if you if you didn't read it for twelfth grade English, I don't know if you're going to get to it now. <laughs> <clears throat> but I won't spoil it that much. And, but here's what I will say: is it's an incredible rescue mission because of what ha- takes place. They're not storming. They're not storming the the prison. To free, uh, to free Charles, hoping that they can get him out of there without losing too many men or losing too many resources. What happens is that his friend, who looks like him, 
They've always looked similar. We, we realize Charles and, and Sydney look, look very similar. Um, because they look so much alike, Sydney is actually able to take the place of Charles so to free him so that he can be with his family. He didn't come to bust them out. He didn't come to, to, to he didn't come as a you know, prison break mission like Arnold Schwarzenegger would, where against all odds he breaks them out and everybody goes home. He came to offer his life as a ransom for his friends, just like Jesus. Jesus would tell his disciples in John 15 on the, la- on the last night that he was alive, that he goes, um, he goes that, that no man has greater love than to lay his life down for his friends. And that's what Jesus had come to do. That's what Jesus did for us. He ransomed us with himself. There was no way. There was no way for him to free us and to reconcile us, to live in relationship with God again unless he offered himself. It wasn't about a victory. It wasn't about an earthly victory as much as it was a spiritual, a spiritual ransom that allowed us to say yes to God and, and be in rela- right relationship with him again. It wasn't going to come out from a, a political victory. It wasn't going to come out any other way. And Jesus is trying to invite Peter back into this reality, as I think he tries to invite us into this reality of this suffering servant who came to ransom himself for us. Who do you say that I am? It matters. But do you also know what Jesus is about? Do you know his mission? And do you know that mission really hasn't changed? He's come to free us. He's come to restore us, to heal us. And the reason he's able to do it is because of his gift, because of his life laid down for us, that even while we were still far from God, Christ died for us. His mission is the same. Do you know it? And are you a part of it? Or do you, or like Peter, maybe, do you find yourself fighting against it? Who do you say that I am? Do you know what I'm about? Uh, I think our action step um, in this story, I think our action step in this encounter with Peter and Jesus um, is, is the same as Peter's. Um, I don't know if anybody else has ever pulled your boss aside. He pulls him aside, I think, you know, a couple of feet. If you've ever pulled your boss aside a couple of feet from everybody else and, and, and had an argument with them or reprimanded them, how well did that go for you, right? And yet that's what Peter does. And we can expect Jesus to get, we, we can expect Jesus, uh, Jesus to, uh, we can, I think we can expect a lot of things, but I don't know if I expected this. Jesus' response to Jesus when he said, Lord, may this never happen. This can't happen to you. But he says, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. From someone who, can, who understands that it's about a relationship with Jesus to now someone who Jesus is calling Satan. It's a pretty, pretty big swing. But listen to what Jesus says. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me, for you're setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. You're setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. And here's, our, here's what, again, here's what I think the action step is for us, uh, because we've got to understand that what Jesus is saying to Peter is not rejection, but it's correction. It's not rejecting him or reprimanding him as much as it is correcting his vision 
of Jesus and his mission. And it all comes down, it all comes down to this Greek word, apiso. Uh, it really translates simply to follow. It means to follow. It's just that when he says it to, when he says it to Peter here, get behind me, it's actually in the imperative. But that means get, get back to following me, Peter. Uh, Peter, James, John, Andrew, all the disciples, do you remember how Jesus uh, invited them in, into, his, uh, into his ministry at the beginning of the Gospels? Do you remember what he said to him? It was an invitation to come follow me. Come follow me. Um, in, uh, throughout his ministry, people would say, let me follow you. It was a way of, of, a, it was a way of showing allegiance. It was a way of, of getting in line with what Jesus was doing because of what they saw happening in his life. And now here, as Jesus is explaining his identity and his mission, he's reinviting Peter to get back in line. It is a hard word. It is a hard word. And when he says, get behind me, Satan, um, you know, Satan twists what God's agenda for his own purposes. And that's hard. That's a hard, that's a hard, um, hard saying. And yet it's loving in the fact that he's saying, okay, Peter, we got to get back. We got to get back to what we're here for. And so as we begin, as we lean into Lent, as we move into what's going to be a new year for us, not only in the church calendar, but in the, in the, uh, in the yearly calendar, maybe this is our action step, our opportunity to allow the Spirit of God to speak over us to get back behind him. And to use those two lenses, the lenses of identity and the lens of mission, to help us see where we are, to ask ourselves, does what I'm about to do or what I'm about to spend my money on or how I'm about to interact with this person reflect what I know about Jesus? Or is, is how I'm going to, or the email that I'm about to send or the thing that I'm about to go to, does it reflect God's mission in the world? And if we allow those things to, if we allow those things to help us get a better image of Jesus, allow us to get a 3D picture of Jesus as best as we know how, giving the Spirit room to speak into our lives, to get back behind Him, I think we're going to be okay. But we have to submit to what He's saying. We have to say, Jesus, I want to be a part of what you, who you are, and I want to be a part of what you're about. And if there's anything that doesn't fit, you have permission you have permission to change it. So this, this, uh, this story, this encounter, it's an invitation to follow him again. Or maybe it's a re-invitation for us to follow him again. Do you know who I am? Do you know what I'm about? That's who I pray that, that our actions and our words reflect that in small and large ways as we move into this Advent season. Please pray with me. God, we come, and we give you permission to speak into our agendas. We give you permission to speak into our lives. Uh, teach us. Continue to teach us, Lord, as we study your Scripture, especially as we study your Gospels. Teach us who you are. Help us to see you. Lord, give us eyes, to, as, the, as the prophets would say, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, thank you for four Gospels. Thank you for four perspectives of who you are that say yes to, uh, to, to the one God that you are. Yeah, it helps us get a visual of where you are so we can follow you, Lord. And if we are out of line, or if we are putting our own wishes, desires, or agendas ahead of you, Lord, we give you permission to, to call us back, to invite us back to follow you, Lord. Thank you that 
your voice, uh, the way you speak to us, will be kind, uh, though firm. Don't call us back, Lord. We want to follow you truly these days. We pray this in Christ's name, and we pray the prayer that your son taught us to pray by saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 